Well, good to be led by the guys, isn't it? Appreciate that, fellas. One of the uh, things that we have to remember that when we have a great opportunity like what we've just had with these songs, um, that they are not ends in and of themselves, but they are a means by which we express our heart and our life unto the Lord and uh, declare what we believe and experience about Him as well as declare how we will follow Him and live for Him. So I pray that it's been that kind of experience for you over these minutes. We're going to be reading in just a few minutes from the Old Testament book of Joshua. So if you want to open your Bible to chapter 12 of Joshua, uh, you'll be ready to read along in just a moment. Uh, Several of you are guests today. We're really glad you've come our way. If you're not already aware, uh, we are in a series of talks that are based upon a weekly Bible reading. We began in January, and we're going through December, and uh, when it's all said and done, we will have read the entire Bible. And we would love for you to join us in the journey. So you'll see at the bottom of uh, your program, right under the order of service, uh, some information about how you can join the journey. I think we're in week 12, uh, beginning today. You don't have to go back and catch up. Just start with us right now. And um, what we'll be talking about in these next few minutes kind of previews the coming week, coming attractions. Uh, Specifically in these weeks, in these readings, we're talking about what's it mean to be the people of God? Uh, What's it look like? How do we get at that? Do you want to be that? And as we get into today's and this week's readings, uh, we have done so with a couple of bookends. Uh, You'll remember that God did a delivering thing uh, for the Hebrews to get out of Egypt by way of parting the Red Sea. And now we're about to see them come into a promised land, and to do that, he will part the Jordan River. Uh, And so uh, with those bookends, we uh, begin to launch into what's it mean to be the people of God in a place, a promised land of God. So uh, to kind of help us get there, I wanted us to do some quick chronology. And I'm doing this at some risk because I know some of you, the minute we say anything historical, the eyes glaze over and, you know, it's like I've lost you for the morning. But uh, this is only going to be a couple of minutes. So if you'll do me the favor to stay with us, uh, I think it'll be helpful to you. But uh, where all this begins, of course, is creation. And God speaks it all into being out of nothing and not Long thereafter, creation is all good, it's all perfect, it's all holy, it's all pleasing unto the Lord. And then there's this coup in the garden, there's this rebellion and the fall. And we are experiencing the outcomes of the fall to this day, all these thousands of years later. Um, The problem of sin became more and more and more and more rampant until God began to enact a plan that the Bible says he had before the foundation of the world. And it was a plan of redemption. It was a plan of exercising his mercy and his grace to reclaim people who were fallen. And basically, that's everybody. The entire world, uh, sinful, busted, uh, depraved, uh, standing uh, against the person and the will and the ways of God, 
And out of all of humanity, he chooses a guy by the name of Abraham with whom he's going to make a covenant, a relationship, and a redemptive plan. Now, there's no uh, reason for him to choose Abraham other than he sovereignly chooses Abraham. Abraham's not a good guy. He's not better than everybody else on the planet. He's not uh, holiness and righteousness incarnate. He is just a man that God says, I'm going to choose that guy. And out of Abraham, of course, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes, and this multiplication of a people of God begins to take place so that as they are getting ready to leave Egypt, they are some number of around 2 million plus. They find themselves in Egypt and in captivity and as slaves for 400 years. They, they cry out to the Lord. They pray. God delivers them. And uh, thus we have the great defining experience in Israeli history, the, the Exodus parts the sea. They go out into the wilderness and he takes them up to the promised land to take them into the promised land. But they won't believe him. They won't trust him. And so they are committed to the wilderness wandering until that generation dies off. And another generation is going to be allowed to enter the promised land. That takes us to the conquest and the time of Joshua where they will go in and they will conquer this land called Canaan. It will be a place where God's people can live for him. Uh, after some developmental things that will happen that we will read about in the coming weeks, there is this united kingdom that happens. It had just been 12 tribes that kind of loosely related to one another. Now they unite under one king. First there's Saul, then there's David, then there's Solomon. But uh, problems arise and it becomes a divided kingdom. North kingdom, southern kingdom, kind of like uh, some American history there. And um, the acts of rebellion, the acts of sin continue as such that God has to judge. And he judges first the northern kingdom uh, in around 722 B.C. And they fall to uh, Assyria and are carried away into captivity. And then around 587 B.C., the southern kingdom is being judged by God. And he raises up Babylon to uh, oppress them and take them off into exile. And that uh, takes you into some pretty painful history in the life of Israel where they are no longer in their promised land, but they are in other lands being servants to other people. God uh, intervenes, does a work, and uh, begins to get them out of that. But where we are focusing today is at that conquest piece. I'm through. Are you still with me? Okay. Thank you. So uh, to kind of give you the, the placement of where we are in this coming week and in this talk today, we're at the conquest. Joshua going into the land and leading uh, the armies of Israel to take Canaan. Now, last week, as we began talking about being the people of God, we said, now here is how God is going to get them ready. A lot of the Deuteronomic readings that we did this last week was about God getting them ready to occupy this land. And basically it was about destroying the idols that were in and around your life because you're going to have to destroy a lot of idols in the land. And nail it down, you're going to worship me alone. And we said, here's the big skill for that. It's the skill of identification. Can you identify what the idols are? Can you identify what those things are that, that become too important to you? And then can you so identify with God, you'll tear those things down and align your heart preeminently with him. 
So that was last week, and that's, that was the big deal. Now, we're actually going to do some conquering this week. And so this week is all about conquering Canaan and establishing life in this land. They're going to have to occupy these cities. They're going to have to occupy these farms and countryside. They're going to have to begin to set up businesses and set up uh, livelihood. Because to this point, they've just been nomadic wanderers. And now they're going to be planted people. And the big skill here is courage. And you're going to see this theme over and over and over again in your readings in Joshua, where he will command them, be courageous, be courageous, be courageous. And, of course, the question arises, how can God command people who are afraid to be courageous? And he can command it because it's a choice. And he can command it because he will give the grace for you to have the courage. And it's all based in a trust relationship. And so here's the two big deals about being people of God. Identification, courage. Still with me? Okay. I will trust that silence to be a yes. (laughs) So we're going to do some readings in Joshua in just a second. Uh, But let's just do some quick survey of what this conquest is going to look like. I'm just going to give you a couple of samples because you're going to read about it all week. And, of course, one of the most famous ones has to do with Jericho. You'll find that in chapter 6 and 7 and... And um, what, what you will see with these conquests is that they happen often in extraordinary kinds of ways. And so with Jericho, you'll remember the story, they were commanded to march around the city. What else? Just march. And then on the seventh day, I want you to go around the city seven times, and then when you're all through, everybody yell. Really? Oh, oh, yeah, blow a horn. Really? And, of course, the walls come down and they're able to go in and take over the city, this great fortified city. Um, So there are battles to fight. There is war to be waged. There are lives that are lost. It is a brutal, bloody kind of thing. But uh, often in these contexts, God will do something that absolutely calls for trust. For them to so identify with him that they will be courageous in the face of overwhelming odds. If they do it without him, or if they do it getting crosswise with him, they're in trouble. And that's what we see in the very next chapter. They have this great victory in Jericho. They think they're going to go and mop up this smaller situation, smaller town, Ai. But there's sin in the camp. God had said, I want you to destroy all the people, all the livestock, get the silver and gold and dedicate it to me. And one guy by the name of Achan got some of the silver and got some of the gold and he kept it for himself. So there was sin in the camp and everybody paid for sin in the camp. There's a lot of lessons to be learned throughout all these readings this week. We all suffer when you sin, when I sin. This world suffers when people sin, not just the individuals that do it. And so they go up against AI and they they get it handed to them. I mean, they uh, are embarrassed by how this little city was able to overthrow them. 
And Joshua falls on his face before God. God, how could this happen? Now you're embarrassing us in front of the world. I mean, everybody knows you parted the Jordan River and, and you helped us conquer Jericho. And then we go against Ai. What happened? God said, sin. And so they go through this process. They identify the sin in the camp and they deal with it. Then you get into chapter 10. And there are five major Amorite kings, and they decide to band together. No, no longer one city, one king against Israel. Let's start banding together. And so five of them come together, and God comes through for Israel, and he starts pelting these nations with hailstones. He starts conquering them with hailstones. And um, it, it's a great story, and you'll, you'll love getting into that. Uh, and then when we get into chapter 12, and that's where we want to read, you'll find this big summation of how it happens city after city, king after king. And I wanted us to take a look at this because this is a way that the people would have rehearsed their faith and their praise unto the Lord. You remember we talked a few weeks ago, how do you keep persevering? How do you keep on keeping on? How do you continue to stoke the flame of faith within your heart? Part of it is you rehearse the things that God has already done. You talk about it. You share about it. You uh, celebrate it. Things like that. So pick up with me in verse 7. And there's a lot of great ancient words in here that I'm going to try not to mangle too much. And so these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan... From Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, and in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won, the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lachish won, the king of Eglon won, the king of Gezer won, the king of Debir won, the king of Gadar won, the king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won, the king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lasharon won, the king of Medan won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron Miron won, the king of Aksashaf one, the king of Tanakh, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, one, the king of Jokneum in Carmel, one, the king of Dor in Naphath Dor, one, the king of Goim in Galilee, one, the king of Tirzah, one, in all, 31 kings. <sighs> Practice that a few times. Here's the point. God had made a promise. God was delivering on a promise. They were entering a land to not only conquer it, but to occupy it, to be God's people in that land. And that begins to raise a lot of questions. Joshua will sum up all of this, and there's a lot more lands to conquer, a lot more kings that are going to be overcome, and a lot more territory that's occupied and settled. But, but Joshua is going to summarize the whole thing in chapter 24, verse 15, when he says, Now, you're going to have to decide. There's, there's all kinds of gods. There's still all kinds of idols and such throughout the land. 
You've got to choose you this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people all echo, and we will serve the Lord. And they do, sort of, kind of, occasionally. And that gets us into the next section of Judges. But I, I want us to park here for just a minute. Because this raises all kinds of questions for us. Like, you're going to be reading this, and it's bloody. And you go into a city, and every man, woman, and child are killed. Livestock's killed. You're like, who is this God? What kind of God has Israel kill innocent people and destroy all of this livestock and, and wealth and things like that? And what, what I want to say to you in, in the attempt to try to speak to that and ultimately your relationship with God and God moving and speaking in your life has to answer it. But for me to try to speak to it, I'll say this. This is a unique time in history. When we think about how can innocent people be killed? Well, the answer to that, there, there were no innocent people. From the time of Adam and Eve, everybody, depraved, sinful, busted, should be judged, should be condemned. Everybody. And what you find is that God, who is full of mercy and grace, makes a way for pardon and salvation. Nobody deserves it. But because he's full of mercy and grace, he begins to launch a plan for some to be saved or delivered from condemnation. And he picks a guy named Abraham for no reason other than his own sovereignty. Abraham was a busted sinner who deserved to be judged and condemned. But God chose him to begin to be the means by which he would bring salvation to this world. And out of that ancestry, out of you know, the tribes that would be birthed from Abraham, that becomes the nation Israel... God seeks to make his name known to the world so that whoever would turn to him in repentance could have life. The last thing I'll say to you is that God, and the Bible attests to this over and over again, he owns everything. He owns this entire globe. He owns every piece of real estate on this planet. And so you go, well, why did God pick on Canaan? God could have picked any place on the planet that he wanted to. If he wanted to pick Egypt, he could have picked Egypt or anywhere across Africa. If he wanted to pick Asia, Mesopotamia, he could have picked any of it. But for reasons that he knows, in, in keeping with his sovereignty, he chose this small piece of real estate that we were calling Canaan and soon will be called Israel. And if you look at a map, you see... In that day in history, it's about the most strategically located piece of real estate in the world. Because the known world basically is between two continents. And that small area, Canaan, Israel, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, was like a land bridge 
between these two massive areas of peoples. And the major trade routes all went through this piece of land. And so what you're, what you're looking at is that God basically said, I'm going to put my people who will lift my name and explain my saving grace to others right in the middle of the world's traffic so that everybody has to come through here and everybody can hear something about the mercy and grace that I have to offer. Now, the wickedness... And the sinfulness in, in that day, not unlike today, was so pervasive that God was uh, intent on Israel being able to occupy this land as free of encumbrances as possible, as free of idolatry, as free from sinful influences as possible. And that's why he was purging the land. And I say it's a unique time in history. You don't find any other time in history where God commands his people to go and to conquer other nations and to take their land. You go, well, Israel's been at war for a long time. It's always a defensive response. All through the centuries since, people have continued to try to come back and take that land from Israel. And so, yeah, they've been in a ton of wars, but it's always been in a defensive posture, not a conquest posture. So, what's all that mean to you and me? Let me finish the timeline real quickly, and then in just a a few minutes I'm going to say, here's what it means for us to be people of God today. What do we learn from these ancients? What are the implications and applications for today? So, as you know, there was this exile. That's where we left it off. And... God had judged the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. These people had been taken off to other lands. In the post-exilic time, they were allowed to come back to the land. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the cities. They rebuilt their lives there. And, of course, we have several prophetic books that describe that kind of time. All of this is moving forward in the redemptive plan of God. God chooses a man, Abraham. A nation comes out of Abraham that will be a means of his saving grace to others. Because ultimately, God will show up through that people called Israel as a messianic savior. He will incarnate himself. And that gets us into the New Testament story. He incarnates himself in the person of Jesus, who then for 30 some years carries out this ministry in this perfect life in our midst. And then, as has been depicted and foreshadowed in all those Old Testament stories, will die a sacrificial, atoning death, substitutionary in our place. And then conquer death by raising back to life so that not just those that have bought into the Judaistic system, but all who will believe and follow Jesus can have life. He empowered that some days after the resurrection at an event called Pentecost where he brought his power, he brought his Holy Spirit upon his people who then began to be known as his church which simply means his called out ones, ecclesia. 
didn't mean a building, didn't mean an institution. It's become those kinds of things, and there's some problem with it, but there's, there's some necessities with it. But mostly it was a movement of God doing something with His people redemptively for the world. So, we are still in that church age from the time of Pentecost to now. And until Jesus returns, we will be in this church age of declaring the mercy and the grace of God as it supremely exhibited through Jesus. Believe that. Repent of living without Jesus. Give Him your whole heart, and you too can have life. That's where it's all at. So what's it look like today to be people of God? Because we're not going to go into any land and conquer it. We're not trying to make America or any other nation on the planet His nation. Rather, we're looking to share His good news to see whosoever will repent and respond come to saving faith. And it looks something like this. We have to have a certain mentality. The Hebrews coming into the promised land had to have a certain mentality. Here's our mentality. It's articulated for us in the book of Titus that I'll reference in just a moment. He says, you come as sojourners. Here's what it means to be people of God today. You're a sojourner. This planet is not your home. Like those ancients before the promised land who went around in tents like nomads, that's you. Oh, I know you got a brick and mortar place that you live in, but it's a tent. You're passing through. Hebrews 11:13 talks about all those ancients to say the ones who were of faith, they died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They understood that even though they began to occupy cities. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. We could talk about many, many verses, but you notice how Peter addresses the people of God. You're sojourners, you're exiles. We're not only to think of ourselves as sojourners, we think of ourselves as citizens of heaven. Not citizens of this world. Now, yes, we have citizenship. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But the way we primarily think of ourselves as people of God, this is not my home. I'm passing through. My citizenship is somewhere else. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. John 18.36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In chapter 17, verse 16, Jesus said to, of his disciples, they are not of this world. Just as I am not of this world. Our citizenship is somewhere else. Heaven. And we are to think of ourselves as enemies with this world. Because this world is at enmity with God. James chapter 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Now, that doesn't mean we have to be hostile to the world. That doesn't mean we have to be unkind, ungracious, brutal, or whatever. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. We can be friendly with the world, but we don't be friends with the world. And then he said, here's how else you think. Understand, you are hated by the world. In John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So you have to keep that in mind. You have to remember that because even though you can have relatively uh, peaceful times and peaceful coexistence with non-believing, non-God-following people, it's temporary. Because once people really begin to grasp what's at stake and what God demands and what God expects, the enmity begins to erupt. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be shocked. You've been forewarned. And then finally, we think this way. This is what it means to be people of God. We are ambassadors of Christ in this world. You go, if this is a place where we're hated, if this is a place where it's full of enemies of God, if this is a place where we're just passing through, why why doesn't God just take us on home? Why don't we all just get to go on to heaven if we're followers of Jesus? Because we're ambassadors. He's left us here on purpose for whatever period of time that he has determined so that we can have a part in pointing people to Christ for the mercy, the grace, the salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says it this way, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now I'm just about through, if you can hang with me. When we're talking about what's it mean to be people of God today, it means we think a certain way, and it means that we live a certain way in this world. Just a couple of things. What's that look like with respect to a government that's not godly? And what's that look like toward others who may not care anything about the, the, the person of God or the things of God or even may be hostile toward that? What are the implications? Well, we'll turn to Titus to get at that. In Titus chapter 3, and let me see if I can get on the right page. It's going to do it anyway. Okay. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Remind the people of God to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be very obedient. Now, he expounds in a lot of other texts, Paul does, about that, namely Romans 13, uh, where you pay your taxes you're a good citizen, you're, you obey the laws, you mind the rules, uh, you do your part to make this a, a better uh, place in which to live. 
so that there's a mutual blessing for other people to be able to live in this context and so on. That's how you relate to this government. Anytime the call for obedience to the government is in direct contradiction to obedience to God, you're off the hook. You no longer obey the government at that point. And increasingly, churches are not being allowed to say what I just said. So if I get arrested, I hope you'll come visit me. I like chocolate chip cookies. We are compelled and commanded by God, obey the, the, the rules, the laws, do what the government says, be a good citizen, and so on. Unless that comes crosswise with the commands of God. And friends, there's issues. There's issues today that is right at the heart of this, this matter. And the talking heads that frame the issues have it framed like it's something else. But it really is the matter of conscience to follow God. You want to talk more about it? I'll talk to you more about it. But that's how we are people of God toward government. How are we people of God toward others? Then he goes on to, to finish that thought in Titus 3, 1 and 2, that we are to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In other words, because you're in a world who is at enmity with God and hates true believers and uh, wars with the causes and the purposes and the will and the ways of God, that doesn't mean you get to be a jerk. You're to be kind. You're to be gracious. You're to be courteous. You're to be loving. You are to work for the good for others. You are to serve. Pour out your life in the name of Jesus. Why? With the hope that they'll be able to see mercy and grace, repent from their waywardness and turn to Christ. That's what it's all about. So, what do you do with all that? Is this real life stuff to you? I mean, last night... Uh, Sherry and I have gone to a wedding of a family friend, and we love the guy that got married, and and um, we stayed for a while for the reception, and um, there were some family members that we didn't really know who are kind of on the blacklist of the rest of the family um, for good reasons. I found out all the story. But uh, those four people are at one table, and Sherry and I were assigned to go to that table. Now, there's 19 tables in that place, and all of them have like 10 people per table. There's six at our table, and the other four are um, EGR, Extra Grace Required People. So... Um, you know how this goes. You sit down. You don't know each other. You're introducing yourselves. And, you know, so what do you do? And what do you do? And I'm like a minister. 
Holy smoke, are you really? Gosh, there goes my night. I'm going to have to be good all night. I mean, the guy says it. And he's not really joking. And uh, then he wants to tell me how many more people in the church are alcoholic than people that are not in the church. You know, that constrained kind of living that you do. And that was just the beginning. Uh, I was like, Sherry, you want me to get you a drink? I can go over. <laughs> and she's like, you stay here. <laughs> Gracious, kind, gentle, purposeful. Said some things directly into some of the comments that he made. Didn't get argumentative. Didn't get into a debate. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to get into those kinds of games. But I want to be a redemptive presence. I want to be an ambassador in whatever context God might put us. This is real life stuff, guys. You're into this every day in the workplace, recreation, social circles. Will you be the people of God? Will you identify with Him, be courageous? Now, if you haven't crossed that line of faith, you've been kind of tracking with some of this stuff. Maybe a few puzzle pieces are coming together. Listen, friends, there's evidence. We talk about the evidence in here every week. For those of you that are guests, we give you a book that's just filled with evidential conversation. Well, you weigh the evidence and make a decision. If you make it against Christ, okay. It's an informed decision. But please don't buy into just the default thinking of people that, and media and so on that just they don't really get it. And they, they talk about it all in sound bites. Weigh the evidence. Make a decision. And if you choose to believe, then that means you're choosing to obey God, be His people, and be courageous in this world. This is not optional stuff. When the ancients went into the promised land, it wasn't that some of them had to go and fight and some of them got to go and, God help them. They were all in. And so it is for followers of Jesus. We're all in. There's no space on the bench for anybody to watch the game. You're in the game. You're a key player. Will you obey and be courageous? Will you be an ambassador? Who knows the good news, shares the good news, and invites others to embrace the good news. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these friends. You have seen fit to bless us with your presence in these minutes. And we want to be responsible in the way that we handle your presence, in the way that we deal with your presence. And so, God, help us by your grace to say yes to everything you ask, to live in your power and according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.